We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. Go ahead and remind you where we've been the last several weeks. We've been looking at the issue of who Jesus is and what he does on behalf of his people. But we've specifically been doing this through the lens of Jesus' own statements about himself. Now, in John's gospel, these statements are commonly referred to as the I am statements. If you remember, over the course of this sermon series, we've seen Jesus say things like in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he's the, de- the door or the gate into the sheepfold. He's the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Last week, in John 14, we looked at his statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now we turn our attention to the final of these seven I am statements in John chapter 15. So would you please stand as we pray and ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Father, we ask that you would open your word to us, that we might see your ways, that we might know you more fully. We pray this in the strong and beautiful name of your Son, who is the living word. And we ask that by your Spirit, you might implant this and seal this into our hearts. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 in John chapter 15, we read, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are their branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. If you go back to the beginning of the story of the Bible, the story begins in a garden. And God is the ultimate gardener. Genesis chapter 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the author of Genesis, Moses, begins to describe for us the process of God creating and ordering a world that would be suitable for human flourishing. And this process of creating, God creates a garden and there he places Adam and Eve in it. He instructs them that they should be uh, fruitful and multiply. That's literally what he says to them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, is be fruitful. Why? Because that's the goal of every single garden. It's the production of a fruit. In a flower garden, the fruit is the blooms and the buds that open up and fill our hearts with joy because of their beauty. A farmer, he tends a garden and he hopes to grow a crop 
that will feed his family and others that he cares for or provide a way for him to sell those uh, those yields to people who also want to feed themselves and thereby providing for himself and the ones he cares about. But it's true with the garden, with farming, the goal of the whole enterprise is to yield fruit. The produce. An orchard produces fruit. If gardens do not produce fruit, if they don't produce vegetables, if they don't produce flowers, then what's the purpose of going through all of the trouble? Now, Jesus here is talking specifically about a vine and about branches and about his father, who is the vine dresser. Now, it's not exactly clear where this discourse, this conversation is taking place, but we do know it occurs after John 13 and 14. Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the Passover meal. He knows that on the next day he will ultimately die on the cross. And so it's possible that Jesus is walking with his disciples as they leave this upper room, as they move to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to pour his heart out, agonizing in prayer. That as they're walking together as a group, Jesus sees these vineyards, olive trees, fruit trees all around. And he takes this as an opportunity to instruct his disciples about what the nature of spiritual life is really like. He's going to illustrate for them a lesson that he wants them to understand before he is separated. So in verse one, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, this is a strange metaphor for some of us because most of us don't know a lot about vineyards. It's an agricultural metaphor. And for people like me, I didn't grow up gardening and I'm actually a very poor gardener. We've tried to grow tomatoes. We've tried to have flowers and plants in our home. And I'm really good at a couple of things. I'm really good at getting started and I'm really good at killing plants. So if you have some plants that you want to get rid of, I can take care of them. They won't last very long, but you won't have to worry about them anymore. So I really don't know a lot about agriculture. And to be honest, I know zilch about vineyards. But I learned a little bit more this week about vineyards. And what we see is that Jesus is looking around and he sees a vineyard and he uses an opportunity to instruct his disciples. He uses this as a way to communicate a very important lesson that he's been trying to communicate to them all along. But it's not just the vine as a metaphor. He's doing something far more significant. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And that's loaded with significance. Throughout the Old Testament, the imagery of the vine is used to describe God's people. In the Old Testament, you come across this imagery of a vineyard on multiple occasions, either referring to a specific individual or to the covenant people of God. But it almost always refers to the nation of Israel when you read about vineyards. The grapevine becomes kind of synonymous with the people of Israel. In the temple, they have this incredible gold, massive vine that's on the door that leads into the Holy of Holies. It was symbolic of the nation. Psalm chapter 80, verses 8 through 11, this is what we read. We we read that God brought a vine out of Egypt, and we know that's the story of the Exodus. He drove out the nations and he planted it in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. And it sent out its branches to the sea and it shoot to the river. The psalmist here is describing the nation of Israel as this massive vine that's been planted. And it covers everywhere and everything. 
The nation of Israel was, serve, was to serve as a blessing to the nations. The purpose for them being redeemed out of Egypt was that they would bear fruit for God and it would be pleasing to him. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, as the nation of Israel goes into the promised land and God plants them as a vineyard, she doesn't produce the kind of fruit that he had hoped. She doesn't produce the kind of fruit that God wanted. Most of the time when the imagery of the vine is used in the Old Testament, it's a negative connotation. In the Old Testament, when Israel's the vine, it's almost exclusively accompanied with a judgment or declaration that God did all this. He planted this vine, and yet rather than yielding wonderful, beautiful, rich fruit that was pleasing to God, they brought forth something else. And so therefore the wrath of God is coming. Isaiah chapter 5 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his, ple- are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. So he's looking for this fruit, this fruit of justice. But this is what he finds. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. So whenever you would hear the terminology about a vineyard referring to the nation of Israel, it was always in this negative context. So if you're a first century Jew... And you would hear Jesus saying this, you would almost always expect a pronouncement of judgment to be connected. So this passage forces us to look at ourselves and ask the question, what kind of fruit are we bearing? Are we bearing good fruit that's pleasing to God? Because you and I are like Israel. We've been called by God to be his people and we've been called for a purpose to produce fruit. Fruit that's pleasing to God and fruit that will last. So what kind of fruit is it that God is looking for? The same kind of fruit he was looking for in the nation of Israel, for justice, for righteousness, for worship, for glory from his creation. But if you and I are a garden and we're created to produce fruit for him, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how can we be certain that the fruit we're producing, God will find pleasing? Now, this is the question that really each and every religion, worldview, philosophy seeks to answer. How do I live a good life? How do I live a life that God would ultimately find pleasing? How do I live a life that God would be satisfied with? Do we do it simply by following a set of strict rules and religious principles? Are we clear to avoid all the bad things while making sure we do all the good things? Do we need to offer certain sacrifices, engage in certain rituals? What do we do with all of those feelings of insecurity? That nagging sensation deep down that we know we don't truly measure up. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, I am the true vine. He's taking this idea of a fruitless vine, the nation of Israel, and he's turning on its side. He's saying, I am the true vine. In short, what he's really saying is what Israel couldn't do, what you and I can't do, he does for us. He's going to be and to do what you and I could never do for ourselves. Israel fails in her mission to be the people of God. They fail to produce the fruit that God was looking for. You and I are in the same situation. And so Jesus, Jesus in a very kind of uh, uh, scandalous way, is saying that I am the true Israel. I am the true people of God. And where Israel failed, Jesus will now be successful. Where she failed to live out the law of God... Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or to put the law away or to do away with the law. But no, I've come to fulfill the law in all of its completeness. Israel failed to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus comes 
And he gathers to himself, the book of Revelation says, a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's why he can say that I am the true vine. What's interesting, again, we come back to this reality. Jesus doesn't say, I'm a vine. But he says, I am the vine. I am the true vine. So what does he mean by the fact that he's the true vine? Well, I think the focus is on the word true. Jesus is saying to you and to me, there's a lot of different ways to pursue spirituality. There's a lot of ways to live religiously, but there's only one true way to do it. And so we have to make a choice. Every single one of us, every human being throughout the course of history lives for someone or something. And that something is always abundance. We want to naturally do well and flourish in human beings. We don't have to teach people that. That's just intuitive to the human condition. No child, when you ask them in elementary school, what is it you want to be grow up? What is it you want to be when you grow up? Says, you know what? I want to be the worst doctor there is, and I want to be sued for malpractice. No one says that. They say, I want to be a doctor, and I want to solve. I want to, you know, come up with a cure for cancer because we have in us this idea that we want to be abundant. We want to no one says, you know what? I want to be the worst mother in the world. We don't wish for those kinds of things because we desire to be fruitful. Because God has created us to live the abundant life. There's something in all of us that wants to find meaning and significance and fruitfulness. We all are longing for an abundant, fruitful life. The question is, do we pursue it through the true vine or do we pursue it through some other avenue? How do you consider, what do you consider the source of a fruitful life? There are all kinds of counterfeit things out there. Tim Keller, who was a pastor of Redeemer Press in New York City, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. He talks about this. He, he talks about it, but he couches it in the language of idols. Now, the Old Testament is the story of idolatry. The story of the New Testament really is the story of idolatry. But we seem to be more sophisticated. We think of the people in you know, ancient times to be um, you know, not nearly as enlightened as we are. But yet they understood something that we sometimes fail. As all of us are going to worship something. Now, they created idols and they bowed down to them. But you and I create other idols. Maybe they're not set upon a shelf that we gather and pray in front of, but we still pledge our life and our allegiance to them. And so he asked the question, what is an idol? He says, it's anything that's more important to you than God. He says, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life finally has meaning. Then I'll know that I'll have value. Then I'll feel significance and secure. He says there are many ways to describe this relationship with idols, but the best is probably the idea of worship. You worship something. You worship someone. You and I are pursuing some kind of avenue of spiritual life. The question Jesus says, are you pursuing the avenue of true spiritual life? So everyone's going to try to find life somewhere, but are you trying to find that life that Jesus says is only available through him? I'll give you an example. We've been watching a lot of old movies with our kids, trying to introduce to them what we think are classic films that we grew up watching and loving. So one of the ones we watched recently was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Is everybody in here? Anybody not seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? 
You haven't seen any of them? Okay, well, this will be a spoiler. But if you know, the whole idea is that uh, Indiana Jones is trying to find, uh, you know, this cup that Jesus supposedly drank out of before the Germans do. Because the Germans believe it. if they finally capture this, that they will have unlimited power. And so they ultimately arrive in this place. And there, behold, the, uh, you know, in front of them uh, lies, you know, some... Incredible chalices that are gold and, you know, uh, decorated with all kinds of jewels. And, and they're kind of the lead villain in the movie as he's looking around. And he's considering who it is that Jesus is. He grabs this cup and it's, it's, you know, it's big and it's shiny and it has all the jewels around it. And he dips the water and he begins to drink it. And just a few short seconds after he begins to drink from this cup that belonged to Christ, he, rather than experiencing eternal life, his body starts to wither and die rather quickly. And within a matter of seconds, he goes from being a relatively healthy man to being a, you know, a skeleton. And so the question before Indiana Jones and his counterparts is, well, if the, this cup is not one that we would assume it looks like, what does it really look like? And so they have to go through this uh, kind of mental exercise. Well, well, Jesus was a carpenter, so what kind of cup would he have? And it's this very modest, nondescript cup. And Indiana Jones gathers it up. And the, the guy who's there who's guarding, guarding all of these uh, uh, chalices, he says you must choose wisely. Because whatever you choose will either lead to life or to death. Jesus says the same thing. He invites us to choose wisely either a vine that leads to death or the vine that leads ultimate to, ultimately to life. Now, if we choose wisely, if we choose the true vine, then the natural outcome is going to be this. You will bear fruit. Jesus makes this clear in this passage. That's the whole point of this passage, that you and I as branches are to bear fruit. But the only way we do that is if we are connected to the true vine. There's a union that occurs between the vine and the branches that yields fruit. There's a union that occurs between Jesus and his people that yields fruit. He's the vine, he says, and we're the branches. We're connected. We're united. We live in this union with him. And the result is we bear fruit. So this picture Jesus is painting is one of you and I living in complete an utter dependence upon him. He is the source of all life. He is the one that sustains us. That's why he uses this word abide in me. The word abide literally means to remain. You and I, we want to run off and do our own thing. We want to be spiritual lone rangers. We want to operate as spiritual free agents. And we want to be the source of our own life. But Jesus says, if you want to bear fruit, then you must remain or abide in me. If we run off and we do our own thing, then we cut ourselves from the source of life. I read a story about a missionary who was in Africa. He was working with this village, but part of what he did was he brought clean water and he brought a generator in order to have some electricity in order to supply lighting so that they could meet at night. And um, some of the people who were there in the village, they came to see this missionary. And they noticed the electric lighting that was strung from the ceiling of his building. And as he turned on the light, they were incredibly overwhelmed by the electricity and the, the miracle of the light coming on when he flipped the switch. So one of these visitors to the missionary, he asked if he could have one of the light bulbs. And the missionary, thinking that, oh, he was just kind of wanting this as a, as a memento or as a souvenir, he gave him an extra light bulb. And so as he was out uh, some days, weeks later, visiting the area around this village, he stopped at the hut of this man who had asked for the light bulb. And what he noticed 
was that he had taken this light bulb and he had tied a string to it and he had run it through the trees around his hut. So the missionary had to explain that in order for the light bulb to work, it couldn't just simply be attached to a string, but it had to be attached to a source of electricity in order for the current to be brought to the bulb. See, the light bulb was useless without a source of power. The same thing is true about you and me. If we're going to abide in Jesus, that's the source of our power. If we're going to do something else, then we're going to be powerless. That's why Jesus says we have to abide in him, the living, true vine, so that we will bear fruit. And he says when we do this, we bear fruit and the Father is glorified. The Father is glorified through you and in you and through me and in me. But what is this fruit? What is the fruit that we're supposed to bear? You can turn to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, um, I believe, in which he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's singular, though. But when Paul talks about it, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and then he goes on to describe the aspects of this fruit. He said it's characterized by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kind of fruit that Jesus longs to bring into your life. But he also goes on in this particular chapter and he says that love is a fruit that we should bear. In verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another even even as I have loved you. That paragraph that follows our text today describes us abiding in love. The love that God has for us is the power and the source for you to show that love to other people. So what Jesus is saying is that in in abiding in him, the fruit that we begin to bear is reflective of who and what he is. That our character over time will begin to look more like Jesus. But the one thing that people will know us specifically by is love. A branch has the same uh, nature as the trunk. A branch has the same nature as the vine. If God is love, then you and I would also be love. That's the kind of fruit that we should bear. One of the other movies we were talking about this week, Hudson and I were riding the cars, The Wizard of Oz. He's actually never seen The Wizard of Oz. And it made me think of, you know, are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? This morning, are you bearing good fruit are you bearing bad fruit? Are you connected to the vine and bearing the kind of fruit that glorifies the Father? Or are you producing some other fruit that comes out of your own darkness, selfishness? Imagine if you were, Paul Tripp uses this illustration, sitting on your back porch and your neighbor next door has an apple tree. But this tree is covered with dead, moldy, rotten, stinky apples. The tree's dead and you wonder why your neighbor doesn't just cut it down. But then one day you see your neighbor come out of his garage and he's carrying a ladder, which he leans up against the tree. And then he goes back into his garage and he pulls a bucket out that's filled with beautiful red apples. He brings them out to the tree and he sets them down. Then you watch him go back and he gets a stapler and he climbs up on his ladder and he takes these apples and he begins to staple them to the tree. You would think your neighbor was insane. You would want to implore with him the tree is dead and no amount of stapling good fruit to it is going to change that fact. No amount of fruit stapled to it is going to make the tree alive. The tree has to be alive in order to bear fruit. So if you and I are going to bear fruit, then we have to have the life that Christ provides. 
He alone is the source of that life. He alone is the true vine. So this morning, are you bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Let's pray.